Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and I will uh, join you there in just a few moments. Uh, when, uh, as you're turning there, uh, if you he hear someone, there are several different ways this statement, watch your mouth, can be taken. How many of you have ever said that to your children, or when you were a child, heard your parents say that to you, watch your mouth, watch your mouth. Um, or we could say in a in a, a less <laughs> confrontational way, watch your mouth. Uh, do you know that the psalmist in Psalm 141 in verse number 3 actually asked the Lord to watch his mouth? Psalm 141 verse 3, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. And so the importance of watching our mouths, I think about Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 34. Another reason we should watch our mouths is because the scriptures say that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Our mouth is the pressure release valve of our hearts. And I think about James chapter number three as well. When I think about the power of the tongue, remember the writer of Proverbs said that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. You know, all of us have tremendous power with our mouth and our tongue for good or for evil. And in a positive sense, never have any of us had a greater opportunity to do profound good than with the words that we speak. The words of kindness, the words of encouragement, the words of evangelism, proclaiming the good news, what an opportunity, a powerful opportunity. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ and how his words have transformed the world in so many ways. But I think about the power of the tongue in James chapter number 3. Uh, it's likened to a rudder. It's likened to a bit in a horse's mouth. And the rudder on a ship, which is great as it is, it's driven of fierce winds, yet that large ship can be turned around with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor of the ship listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter, a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison." Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So the power of the tongue. And so my admonition to all of us this evening, not in the attitude of a parent saying, watch your mouth, but in the general way of, Watch our mouths. Let's watch our mouths. And I think there's something important as I look at the book of Romans. I was doing some reading on this, and my attention was struck by the connection between our mouth, our heart, and the work of salvation in our lives in the book of Romans. Really what got me to thinking about this was a couple of weeks ago, I was in town and uh, saw a man wearing an article of clothing that uh, was uh, had the on it the logo and the name of a company in Hendersonville that uh, sells a certain kind of construction material. And uh, I know someone that works there who's a Christian. 
And I asked the man, I said, do you go to this place and, and buy material there frequently? He said, as a matter of fact, I do. And then I said, do you know so-and-so? And I named this guy. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know him. And I can tell you, have you ever had somebody say something like that to you? And the look on their face is like, I'm not sure I want this conversation to go any further. He goes, oh, yeah, I know him. He said he claims to be uh, in the ministry. And he said, and yet to hear him talk, you would never know it. And never did I want to get out of a, out of a conversation and disappear. Because I had entered into the conversation speaking very highly of this individual and his friendship. And then to have that man say that to me. And I wanted to just call this guy up and say, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. The book of Romans, of course, has as one of its main themes the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul uh, writes these 16 chapters from Corinth in approximately 58 AD. He's anticipating going to Rome of his own free will. But you'll remember that he ends up going to Rome and Caesar paid for it. He went as a prisoner. And there he would get to preach the gospel at Rome, not in the way that he had originally anticipated. But he writes this wonderful treatise on our salvation, on the gospel. And uh, you've heard me give this outline before. But chapters 1 through 3, he deals with the sin of mankind. Uh, Whether it is the Gentile or the Jew, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then in chapters 4 and 5, there are two of the most glorious chapters in all the Bible on our salvation. Salvation by grace, through faith, and Abraham, this wonderful picture of believing God and it being counted to him for righteousness. And then Paul said, but God didn't just say that to Abraham. That's the way everybody gets saved. And then chapters 6, 7, and 8 deal with sanctification. Romans 1 through 3, our sin, all of us have sinned and and the condemnation of sin is on us. Romans 4 and 5, salvation. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Our sanctification, now that you're saved, you are in Christ and uh, you are raised to walk in the newness of life, in the whole scope of the work of sanctification in our lives. Uh, Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are something of a parenthesis where Paul answers the question before he speaks about the service that believers are to render for the Lord. He answers in anticipation of the question, so what about the Jews? If the nation of Israel had been God's channel through which he would work, an institution through which he would work, and now you're talking about Gentiles being saved, what about the Jew? And so he answers the question in Romans 9, 10, 11. The Jews have been temporarily set aside as a people, but they are going to be put back into the work of God, the plan of God. And I love what the Apostle Paul says in in Romans 9, 10, and 11. If the cutting out of the Jew has been the blessing that it has for the Gentile, then what will it be when they get put back in? And the answer to that question is the millennial kingdom. Look at what it's going to be. And then chapters 12 through 16 deal with the believer's service. Sin, 1 through 3. Salvation, 4 and 5. Sanctification, 6, 7 and 8. 9 through 11. What about the Jew? And then chapters 12 through 16, the service of the believer now that they have been saved. 
And so a simple outline, Paul wrote it, 58 AD from Corinth. One of the sub-themes, and you see this as you read the book of Romans, and this really becomes important to our thought this evening. One of the sub-themes of the book of Romans is because of the gospel now going to the Gentiles, Paul is writing predominantly to Gentile believers in Rome, but there were Jewish believers in Rome too, and they were still hammering through going to church together. Unity, getting along. I mean, if ever there was an ethnic divide, it was the Jew. And may I say, even to this day, if there were ever an ethnic divide, it is the Jew from the Gentile, the Jew from the Arab. We saw that in vivid detail uh, when we made our trip to Israel. And so, one of Paul's themes is, a sub-theme is, the unity of the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. It's likely that by the time Paul wrote to the book of uh, wrote the book of Romans to the believers that were there, there may well have been several churches that had been established. There are hints in the book of Romans that there were Jewish churches and Gentile churches. And rather than work through the thorny details of going to church together and unifying as the Scripture would teach and as God intended, they had probably just said, "You know, we'll have the Jewish Christian church over here." in the Gentile Christian church over here. Paul makes it clear, and we'll see this in a few moments at the end of the book of Romans, he makes it clear, that's not God's plan. Okay. Now, how does this work together with the thought of the mouth, watching our mouths? I was doing some reading, and one of the authors that I read brought brought out, brought to my attention as I was reading, The correlation between our mouths is the pressure release valve of our heart and the work of salvation in our lives. And four times in the book of Romans, Paul references the mouth. And it's interesting that it follows from before we got saved all the way through to God's long-term plan in our lives for what our mouth, the, the purpose that it's to fulfill. And so my thought is this, the mouth is to be a model or a reflector or a mirror of the work of salvation in our lives. The mouth is the pressure release valve of the heart. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse number 14, uh, let's begin in verse number 13. Paul, in speaking of the depravity of man, the lost condition of mankind, Before salvation without Christ, notice what he says, their throat. By the way, at this point, he has concluded all under sin. He will bring about that case even further, beginning in verse number 21, that it's not just the Gentile, the reprobate pagan Gentile that is lost, but it's the religious Jew that is lost too. And then he uses a strong description of the depraved condition of man without Christ, None are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, he'll say in verse number 23, and come short of the glory of God. But notice some of the graphic description he gives. Verse number 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. We saw an open sepulcher in the Garden of Gethsemane with human bones in it. That was a little chilling to me. They were back there in the dark, but I took a picture of it. If you want to see it, you can see part of a skull. You can see leg bone. You can see an open sepulcher. An open sepulcher in the first century was considered an embarrassment. It was a desecration of the person that was buried there. Also, an open sepulcher stunk. 
There were family sepulchers, and a body would be put in there to decompose. The stone would be rolled in front of it. The body would be put in there to decompose. And then, after a year, the stone would be rolled away, and all that smell would come escaping, whatever was remaining. And then the bones would be taken and put in a different location with the bones of the fathers and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers before. It was just the process that they used. But an open sepulcher is synonymous with bad stink and with dishonor. Paul said the mouth of an unsaved man, the throat of an unsaved man is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The idea is they've tried to smooth things over. A lost man tries to smooth things over to sound better than he really is. There's hypocrisy that characterizes him. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is interesting. You know, I can imagine a moral man reading Romans chapter number 3 and saying, I'm not that bad. A religious man could read that and say, I'm not that bad. Using the analogy of the poison of asps being under their lips. I want you to think about it this way. I was uh, thinking about how to explain this. You know, if I see a copperhead snake outside my house, I don't go up to that snake and ask that snake, have you ever bitten anyone before? And let that determine whether or not I will kill that copperhead. That copperhead is going to get lead poisoning from a shotgun, or he is going to experience dismembership, from his head and the rest of his body by a hoe? I'm not going to investigate to see if he's actually ever used the poison that is under his lips or in those, those, uh, those glands and use those fangs to bite anybody before I determine whether or not he's guilty and deserves to die. Why? Because the potential is there. It's in his nature. A moral man needs to realize he may not be as bad as he could be, but he is still condemned because of his sin. The poison of asps is under their lips. This, he is what he is by nature. Notice this, whose mouth is full. Here's where we reference the first time the mouth. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. A mouth being full of cursing is the idea of wishing for the worst for someone else. Someone crosses me, it's wanting the worst for them, and then bitterness is the expression of that. So as we think about our mouth, I want you to notice, first of all, that before we were saved, our mouth was a corrupt mouth, and it expressed the corruption that was in our heart. But then I want you to notice the second time, and the author, the commentator, brought this out. It was really interesting. Notice verse number 19, the second mention of the mouth in parallel with the work of salvation in our lives. Verse number 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, why? That every, what? Mouth may be stopped, and all the world, Jew, Gentile, become guilty before God. Our mouths, secondly, were convicted mouths, stopped by the law of God, One of the commentators I read said this about the law. The law is a mirror to show us our sin. 
but you don't take the mirror off the wall and try and comb your messed up hair with it. Its purpose is to show you your sin, not to fix you. But what does the law do? Here is man with the corruption of his mouth. Here is man whose mouth is full of cursing and all of that an expression of the wickedness of his heart, the lostness of his heart. His throat is this open sepulcher, the stench of death regularly coming out of it. By the way, don't forget Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 29. The Apostle Paul told believers, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And I think about Colossians chapter 4 in verse number 6. Let, um, let me turn there. Colossians chapter 4 in verse number 6. The Apostle Paul says these words. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Isn't it interesting? Ephesians 4.29 in Colossians 4, 6, both of those verses in reference to the believer's mouth, letting no corrupt or already dead with the stench of death, the old man, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or building up, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Let your speech be always with grace. To the rare verses in the scriptures that speak of grace that you and I minister, Generally speaking, grace is ministered by God. That's the perspective of Scripture. But you and I can minister grace to others through our tongue, the Spirit-filled tongue, whether in the home or the workplace or wherever it may be. But I notice that, first of all, our mouth has to be or was a convicted mouth. Every mouth stopped by the law of God, and all the world become guilty before God. Every man brought face to face with his guilt or his liability before God, and he is without excuse. The mouth is stopped. So there's the corrupt mouth that reflects the wickedness of man's heart, the lostness of his, conviction, of his condition. Then there's the convicted mouth. When faced with the law of God, the mouth is, speak, uh, is, is stopped. It has no excuse, Paul would say in Romans chapter number. But I want you to notice in Romans chapter number 10, the third mention of the mouth as it relates to the work of salvation in our lives. We go from a corrupt mouth to a convicted mouth. But then in Romans chapter number 10 and verse number 8, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy what? Mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Understand that the confession of the mouth and the belief of the heart are not separated activities. The belief or the, the belief of the heart is manifested through the confession of the mouth. The confession of the mouth is the reflection of the belief of the heart. The word confess simply means to say the same thing as if I confess the Lord Jesus with my mouth, I'm saying the same thing about Jesus that God said about him. That he's the Savior, which implies I need a Savior. That means I'm a sinner or was a sinner and still am, but I was a sinner that needed saved. Now I'm a saved sinner. And so the third way that the mouth parallels the work of salvation, 
Not only did we begin with a corrupt mouth that manifested our lost condition, then it was a convicted mouth. There was nothing that I could do to save myself. The law of God stopped me and showed me my need of Christ. But thirdly, there must be a confessing mouth. A confessing mouth. The confession of the mouth and the belief of the heart, we could say, are two sides of the same coin. And here's what I want us to do before we move to the fourth and final point. I want you to not interpret this passage of Scripture through your 21st century American Christian mindset. When it comes to confessing the Lord Jesus with our mouths. We live in a nation that has been called by many Christian, a Christian nation truly founded on Christian principles. In many ways, born of revival, prolonged by revival when we think about the first and the second great awakening. The fact that we can go to many of the main buildings and monuments of our nation in its capital, Washington, D.C., and see scripture. By the way, Greek philosophers also have quotes on a lot of those monuments, too. But still, our forefathers, many of them believers who acknowledged the importance of the biblical foundation of government that we have. And so, listen, people grow up in America saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I believe. And it's an intellectual belief, it's a religious belief, but in some cases, it may not be a transformative belief. I want you to think about confessing the Lord Jesus with your mouth being a first century Jew. To confess, to say out loud that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but He is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Incarnate. For a first century Jew to say that could mean loss of home, loss of inheritance, loss of family, loss of vocation, loss of status, loss of life. But a heart had gone from having its corruption exposed or a mouth, and then being convicted, the mouth stopped by the law of God, and realizing that Jesus was the Savior, and now that confessing mouth. Think about a first century Gentile. Do you know that it was a part of everyday Roman worship, especially when the Caesars began to be recognized as divine, that part of first century Roman worship was to go to the temple burn incense, and say, Caesar is Lord. It was key to your functioning in society as a Roman citizen. There was no separation of religion and government. And so if you were going to survive and function as a Roman citizen in the first century, it was expected that you would say Caesar is Lord and mean that exclusively. But for a Roman citizen, a Gentile, to hear the gospel, 
to recognize the corruption of their heart evidenced by their mouth, and then to be exposed to the word of God, the law of God, and recognize their lost condition, their guilt before God, and then to hear of this one Jewish son of a carpenter who professed to be the Messiah and to recognize that he is God of very gods in human flesh, come as our Redeemer. And to call him Lord instead of Caesar for a Roman citizen could mean death. And yet the mouth, as the expressor of the heart, in following the work of salvation from corruption to conviction to confession of Christ as the Lord. The mouth is the mirror of the work of the gospel in our lives. Paul gives one more reference to the mouth. Go with me, if you would, to chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. So there's the mouth revealing the corruption of the lost man. There's the mouth that is stopped by the law of God. And it's the convicted mouth, guilty before God. There's the mouth then that confesses the Lord Jesus, the one who is the Jehovah of salvation, and believes in the heart that God has raised him from the dead and has experienced salvation. So now, what is the fourth passage of Scripture that speaks of how that work will be manifested through the mouth. Notice, if you would, chapter 15 and verse number 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Talking about how believers get along with each other. Not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. The stronger believer being the one who is... Uh, not as controlled by scruples when it comes to meat and what we would call gray areas or areas that are not uh, spoken of in the context of morality in the scripture. Verse number three, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Now, remember one of the sub-themes of the book of Romans. Paul is writing to believers in Rome. He hasn't been there yet. When he does go, he's going to go as a prisoner. But one of the underlying issues that he is sensing or hearing that is taking place even in Rome among believers is that the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers just like Galatia and just like other places, are having trouble going to church together, to put it in a nutshell. And Paul says, listen, you need to be like-minded one to another. Notice verse number 6, that ye may with one mind and one what? Do what? Glorify God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us 
to the glory of God. When you think about how Christ received you and me as sinners, you need go no further than back to Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 6. Romans chapter number 5. Verse number, yeah, chapter 5 and verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, can I say this? Christ received me. When I was ungodly, Christ received me. Verse number 8. God committeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ received me. And then Paul would also say, when we were an enemy, Christ received me. Without strength, ungodly, an enemy, and a sinner, Christ received me. And Paul said that's how you need to receive each other. The same way Christ received us. And one of the main ways that we do that is through our words, our words of edification. Even if it's a Jew and a Gentile. Why? That with one mouth. It's interesting. One of the commentators I read made a great point. By the way, I understand, I remember the old country preacher saying, boy, I love the scriptures. They sure do shed a lot of light on them, their commentaries. Okay. And, and I want you to know in my own study, I immerse myself in the scripture and then use commentaries as a resource to confirm or deny or to bring up things I hadn't thought of. One of the commentators I read, and that, by the way, that's just a testimony of the fact that God the Holy Spirit has worked through other believers in time past to show them things in the scripture that will be a benefit to me. Okay. Right? Because trust me, I have very few original thoughts. Okay. Very few. Maybe we could even say no original thoughts. Okay. But one commentator mentioned this. In verse number six, the Apostle Paul's desire was not that ye may with the same mind and the same mouth glorify God. But he said with one mind and with one mouth. The same is everybody being the same. It's 45 violins up here. Okay. But one implies different being united. And it's Various stringed instruments all playing together. The commentator used the illustration of a patchwork quilt. You've got various pieces of different colors and maybe even fabric weaves, but they all are brought together in one beautiful quilt. And Paul says, that's what we're to do with our mouths. It is a changed mouth. It is a cooperating mouth. A changed mouth that instead of staking off my ground and my position, instead I become one with Jew, Gentile, Northerners, Southerners, Midwesterners, wealthy, poor. I become one with believers of all different backgrounds, tribes, tongues, and nations. And in unity, we make others think bigger and better thoughts than they've ever thought about God before because of this one mouth in a local church. 
a mouth that edifies fellow believers, a mouth that evangelizes the lost, and a mouth that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. A changed mouth. All of these are expressions of our heart. I was reminded of the story today of Billy Sunday, who was a drunken baseball player in Chicago. But walking down the streets, under the influence of alcohol, heard the singing of men in a rescue mission. And that is the catalyst that God used to take Billy Sunday, the drunken baseball player, and turn him into Billy Sunday, the evangelist. Because a group of men whose lives had been transformed by the gospel, singing the praises of God in a rescue mission, weren't afraid to sing loud enough that people on the street heard him. And that one mouth, literally through Billy Sunday, has resulted in thousands upon tens of thousands of people being saved. Because one mouth glorified God. Father, thank you for how you've worked in my heart. So I pray that you'd help us to watch our mouths because of what it reveals about our heart. And I pray that our mouths here as a church, that our mouths would be changed mouths that reflect the work of the gospel in our lives. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke gracious words, the words of life, that our mouths would accurately reflect the words that he spoke. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.